and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things food with your favorite chefs, food influencers, and Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a Minneapolis-based chef on the podcast to talk about his inspiring family history and why cooking with fire reigns supreme. He is a 2022 James Beard Foundation Best Chef of the Midwest and Best New Restaurant semifinalist, and he's the host of the new Food Network digital series, Stoked. It's Ye Vang. Ia, welcome to the podcast. And I have to say congratulations uh, on your recent James Beard nominations, a semifinalist in both the Best Chef of Midwest and also Best New Restaurant categories. Uh, were you able to travel to Chicago for the festivities? You know, it was uh, it was really fun. It was so weird. Like, I've never done a red carpet thing before. <laughs> so it was like super weird because there's like this whole group that like kind of like tells you where to go, where to stand, all these X's and these cameras. And I felt like I was a deer in headlight because all these flashes. And so, yeah. No, it's fun. It's it's like it's like the Oscars for for the food world. So it's always fun to see all the chefs uh, getting you know dressed up and obviously honored for the work that they've been doing in the restaurant industry. But I want to talk about your path to where you are now, because landing in the Midwest, really part of a, a larger story of displacement, determination, and also resilience that's really so woven into your family and your identity. So I would love to to hear more about your family's story and the rich history of the Hmong people and, and how that shaped who you are. So how did your family you know, first come to settle in the United States and specifically the upper Midwest? Yeah. So it's kind of like this kind of this big, long history. But, you know, to understand how the Hmong people is interwoven into American history, you have to go back like, right, you know, right before the Vietnam War. So when the war happened and it started, uh, U.S. couldn't the U.S. government couldn't technically have boots on the ground. So they had, a you know, paramilitary troops and, you know, CIA case officers and, you know, uh, government officials came in and they kind of made like this handshake deal with the Hmong peoples in the hills of Laos because they knew that they needed boots on the ground. And so uh, when they made that deal, it was a hey, come fight for us as this, you know, uh, paramilitary troops. Uh, you know, basically they were called the SGUs, a special grilling unit. And then my dad and his brothers at age 12, 13, they joined up. Wow. And so they, they were trained, you know, as soldiers and the war happened. And there was this kind of this conversation and this deal that was made saying no matter what happened, win or lose, uh, you guys can have free citizenship in our country. Come to our country. And uh, so a lot of Hmong men and boys joined the fight. You know, it was like dad went and then brothers went too. And so that's what happened. And then the war ended. The U.S. pulled out. And then uh, because of that, the, you know, enemy troops or the, you know, the, the the Communist Party felt like, hey, the Hmong people helped the United States. They helped our enemies. So then they are our enemies. So there's a huge genocide of our people. So a lot of the Hmong people in the hills of Laos at that point made that, you know, that that awful, horrendous, tough pilgrimage from the hills of Laos to uh, get to the border and try to cross the border into refugee camps in Thailand. And my parents did that. Uh, and then they met in this refugee camp called Vinai in uh, 79. And they were married. And then they I was born in 84 and our family left in 88. And then wow. we landed in the Twin Cities because um, a lot of the immigration refugee resettlement groups were through Lutheran and Methodist churches. And so that's why, the, you know, in the Twin Cities area in the Midwest, a lot of Wisconsin towns, a lot of Ohio towns. And then there was a, you know, a big group of Hmong people that ended up out in uh, Fresno um, and Sacramento area in California. And so, yeah, that's kind of resettlement. And, the you know, the government decided, hey, we want to kind of spread all these people out because it was just a drove and drove of people that came here in the late 80s and early 90s. And so, wow. 88, we ended up here. We ended up moving out east for a little bit in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, you know. Okay. Uh, lived with, yeah, we lived with Amish and Mennonites and, you know. And it was like, so it was, it was so funny. I always tell people, it's like, there's these white kids and then there were the Amish, the Mennonites. And then us, they're very small <laughs> Hmong people. And so we got along with the Amish and the Mennonite kids so much better because we're like, we're, I guess we're weird. So we could be weird together. And then, you know, <laughs> they got picked on by the white kids. But we're like, I guess I have my friends here who they do farming and they have, you know, their dads have beards and they have horses and buggies. And it's cool. Like you're, we can be friends. 
<laughs> and then, yeah. And then we ended up moving back to the Midwest. I was like eighth grade or something like that. And then uh, spent, wow. spent all my time there. And, but yeah, I mean, it's back and forth. And this is just life for us, you know, as a group of people that, you know, just kind of, you know, got to America and then just hustled their way out. Yeah. I mean, I think that that story, you know, it definitely resonates with a lot of um immigrants and, and that culture in, in the United States. Um, for people that don't aren't maybe aren't as familiar, what are some of the cornerstones of the Hmong culture and, and its food too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, our culture is based on the idea of family, you know, um, this idea that no matter where we go, as long as there's another Hmong person there, yeah, family. I remember as a kid yeah. living in, you know, Pennsylvania, like no joke, like living in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and there was very few, maybe a few hundred Hmong people there. And I asked my dad one day, he, I think it was like tinkering in the bag and I asked my dad, I still remember this. And I said, I was probably like, I don't know, 10, 11. I was like, hey, dad there's not a lot of Hmong people like how, like, what do we do? You know? And he's just like, you know, son, no matter where you go on this planet, if there's another Hmong person there, you will always have family. Cause you really mm. think about it when a group of people that have gone through trauma, suffering, pain together, like, and all they have is each other. Like no matter where you go, like I could go to, you know, like Bozeman, Montana and I see another Hmong f- person there we look at each other and we have that shared history yeah. you know and, and i think that that's that commonality that uh, brings a lot of us together and as as a Hmong community you know and then and then when you think about our food our food is what we carried with us mom and dad didn't have trinkets and stuff like that where they carried like they they had nothing you know and mom i remember she was saying that all we had was these ideas of how to cook cuz we needed food to feed our family and to feed our children and we knew that there would be the next generation to keep you know the, our you know to keep our traditions going and so when you have that that's all you have you know you carry that and you hold it really strong so like you know even in in like Hmong families like we kind of like bicker over like who has the whose mom has the best recipes <laughs> and as much as as much as that's like a fun thing, you know, because like it's like an Italian family, right? Like mm-hmm. who whose whose grandma has the you know the the, the best red sauce, right? As yeah. much as that's like kind of funny and joking, we hold that to tight to us because it means that much. You know, I always tell people that the, the food that we do at our restaurant they come from mom and dad's table. So so my mom and dad, like when they pass away, they don't have a piece of land that they can give us. They don't have a will because they have nothing. All they had was these, you know, their heritage and their legacy was imprinted into these recipes and these food that they handed out to us, you know, and so we're able to communicate that, you know, we're able to say, Hey, here, here's mom's heritage. This is dad's legacy, you know? And so that's why our food means so much to us. And a lot of our food is always, I I, I tell people that we're always, our food is in progress because if you want to know our food, you got to know our people because our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. And our Mm -hmm. food actually literally tells the story of our people, where we've been, where we're going, you know, and where we are. That's really, that's really, really beautiful. Um, what, what is the first thing that you learned to cook? Do you remember? Uh, rice, rice. Hands down. <laughs> Every Hmong kid growing up has to learn how to do rice. And and it's almost like this sense of honor, right? So like, you know, it, it, it's really funny because um, like I'm not like knocking on white people, but it's like, <laughs> I remember in college when my white friends are showing me, oh yeah, you cook rice in, in, in like a, you know, like a, you know, two quart saucepan or whatever, you know, pot. And I'm all like, what are you guys doing? We use rice cookers. Like, you know, like yeah. th- there's, there's this technology called rice cooker and they're like, well, we'll put the rice in here and then we put the water. And then I'm like, dude, like you use a rice cooker, you wash it. And then you, you know, look at the little line of where it is. And then you make sure it hits that line of how many cups of water. And you just close it and you press the button, you know, and, and the brand of rice cookers we use, it's not like, you know, it's not like the cheap brand. Like we use, you know, Tiger, which is a really kind of high end, like rice cooker brand. But, you know, it's, I jokingly say it's like the Tesla of, of rice cookers. <laughs> and, um, and it's like, it's not, you know, it's like, so growing up, that's what we do. Right. And so every night we would have all the kids, part of our chores was to make the rice the night before. So dad had rice in the morning to pack for work. And if mm. you forgot to click the little cooking button, you know what I'm saying? Like there's like the warm <laughs> yep. and the cook. And you forgot to do that. Like dad had no rice the next day. And 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 your mom would be like, hey, uh, who did the rice? And we're all, you know, one of us would be like, well, why did I did rice? rice? Like, well, who didn't click the cook button? And I'm like, and we would like put our heads down. It's like, you know, kind of like <laughs> Mulan style, like bringing dishonor to us all. 
you know, and it's just like that, you know, that, that oh, you dishonor the family by not pressing the button, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the first thing I did. And mom literally took my hands, put it in the water with the rice, taught me like I still use the method where you, you know, bold up your hands like this and then you move it around so you you can make sure you wash all that starch out so the, the kernels of the rice individually you can taste and you wash it and wash it until the rice you know until the rice water is clear and then you you know have to level the water right and you know and all these little techniques where you know honestly what's the recipe for rice water rice boom yeah. done right and so a lot of people would get be like oh that's so simple it's like well it's yeah but the, the, there's like a, a technique to it, you know, and so there's an art to um, it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I watch some of my uh, some of our cooks who aren't Hmong that make rice so like, and I'm like, OK, hold on. I get so you're like, hold on, get back here. Like we this is something that we really need to get right. You know, it's like, um, yeah. you know, like if you go to Italy and they make really good pizza, like dough is what water and flour flour that's yep. basically what it is it's two ingredients you know but like to get that dough right to to get that stretch right to, to, to do all of that like there's a technique to it you know and you know growing up i would stand up over the sink with my mom and i would literally put my hands in there and she would show me how to wash everything so yeah rice is the first thing you do i, I love hearing those stories and and how passionate you are about them at what point did you decide that you wanted to actually be a chef as a profession yeah, I'm, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people about this and, you know, the first thing I say is like, you know, the honest truth is I don't think I found this profession. It found me. Like I was trying to run for it my whole life. Like, you know, I mean, I grew up, you know, it's like, yeah, like it's okay. Like I'll, you, you're a line cook. You make 10 bucks an hour at high school, you know, freshman college kid, whatever. You know, my whole idea was like, I, I want, I didn't want to be in the restaurant. Uh, Cause you know, in restaurant working, the, the honest truth is like, you always work when your friends play, right? Like, especially if you're a college kid, like you start your shift at one or two in the afternoon and you don't get done till like 10, 11 at night. And all your friends are like, so Friday night, they're like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm working, bro. You know? And so <laughs> I hated it. I never wanted to do it, but it's always like this kind of job where I just fell back on. Cause it's like, well, it's kind of the only thing I really know how to do. And I, I tell people that it's literally like that girl that you start dating in high school, but you break up every year. And then you like go back to each other and then you break up and you go back and then you go to college. You're like, well, I think we're we're going to move different direction because we're different people now, you know. But then at, like college is over and you get back to town and you know, you're like, what are you doing? What's going on? You know, and <laughs> and and for me, it, it ended up being like 15, 16 years of it. And I'm like, well, I might as well put a ring on her, you know, because I know her so well. <laughs> and I would say <laughs> I would say if if, if if kitchen life is like the love of my life, which is, I would say it was my first love that you didn't realize that you were actually in love with because mm -hmm. we were just kids, you know, and we didn't know what yeah, we were doing. Puppy love. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I would say about nine years ago and almost 10 years ago, I had, I, I re fell in love with my first love. That's the way mm. I would say it. You know, it's like, then when I found myself going, Oh my gosh, like I know why I love this. I know why it makes me come alive. I know why when I go to bed and I can't stop thinking about this like silly little like idea in my head or concept, I'm like, oh my gosh. And I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking about it, you know, and it's kind of goofy, but it's kind of, that's what love is, right? Where you're just like, man, you're constantly thinking about it. It's like, but you get, you guys get into arguments, you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you're just like, I'm so done <laughs> you with you. don't always get along. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm so done with you. Like I, I quit this. And, but then the next, you know, like two seconds later, you're knocking the door. You're like, I'm sorry. Take me back. <laughs> you know, um, that's how it was. And eventually I had to figure out my why, you know, you know, I, I feel very blessed because with, you know, with, you know, things like the food network, like food became this thing where people weren't just going to restaurants anymore. They wanted to take a big dive into it. So I think that I kind of grew up in the food area when the sorry, I, I kind of grew up in the food scene where things like that were starting to grow. And so I, I want to know my why. And it was really tough because I, when I was younger, it started. I was like, oh, yeah, like. You know, you have all these big titles and you hear like, you know, uh, Sam Pellegrino's 50 best in the world or, you know, James Beard, who got this? And you're just like, whoa, whoa. And all of that stuff was fleeting. I tell people it's like chasing the air, you know, like once you get it, what happens? And um, it really came to this idea where one day I think it hit me where it's like, what rejuvenates my soul about food? And I literally came back to my mom and dad's table 
And when mm-hmm. I realized, like I said before, when I realized that this is their legacy, this is their heritage, this is who they are. And, and it was deeper than food. And then it just became this life work for me where I'm like, okay, how do I tell their story? And I always say, I am a quill, you know, like, like a feather that's you know, used as a quill and they are the ink. It's their story. And I have the honor of writing their story or finishing their story the way that they want it to finish. But what is a quill without ink? It's just a feather that gets tossed in the wind. It's nothing, you know? <laughs> and so they are my ink. They are my purpose. And I, and this isn't like somebody once said to me, like, oh, that's like, that's your shtick. That's what you do. Like the family thing. That's your shtick. And I got really offended. Like, that's yeah. not my shtick, dude. Like, that's just who you are. Well, yeah. Well, you, when you realize that there's these two people that gave up their life, that, you know, the, the way that dad had a fight in the war and the way that my mom had to sacrifice herself, when you realize all that, like, and how much they gave up their life so that you can have life, like it changed every way I thought and changed the way I treated people, changed the way I talked to people. And for me, it changed the way I cook. It's not a shtick for me. It's not, it's not my, oh yeah, that's like, that's like your brand. It's like, it's not, I got so angry when a PR group was like, oh yeah, that was your, that's your brand. And I was like, Dude, it's not my brand, dude. I'll walk out on you guys right now. If you guys think this is my brand, like I'll shut this whole thing down. Like this is who I am. Like it comes back to them. I don't exist without them, you know? Yeah. I mean, with this idea that, that every dish has, you know, this narrative, mm-hmm. how do you encourage people to kind of, you know, look beyond the bite, consider what informs and influences the food that they eat? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that everything has a story, right? My dad's an incredible storyteller. But as a kid growing up, he would make up all these stories when to put us to bed. And, you know, and, and some of them are like his war stories, which I'm like, I don't think it was like children appropriate, but whatever. Like we loved it. Right. <laughs> but, but dad is a storyteller and he, and, and he, and for him, it was his way of communicating with us, you know, and it created our imagination. And I tell my cooks, I'm like, you know, I tell, I tell our chefs and cooks, I'm like, you guys are incredible technicians of the craft. You guys are incredible cooks. You're great operators. But at the end of the day too, you're storytellers. So every one of you comes from a different background. Like some of our cooks are Hmong people. Some of our cooks are, you know, white. Some of them are Chinese. Some of them are Hispanic. Some of them are black. Some of them are trans. Some of them are, you know, from the LBGT community. I'm like, it, I, I want your story. I want you to bring your story in. And then, and then being able to use food, which is a universal language to write your story. And, 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 and for me, that's what I'm trying to do. It's just like, I, my story is I exist and I'm blessed to be able to do what I do because of these two people. Because of their unconditional sacrifice, you know? And so, um, so for example, when you go to a restaurant and and you eat something, it's like super delicious. Ask yourself, how did this get here? Why is this here? Why does it taste the way it does? Before you, before you make any recommendation to, Hey, could you change it this way? Or could you like not put so much of this? Or I like this, you know, it's that whole idea that the customer is always right. I'm like, well, what if the customer was just quiet? And just ate the food that was served to them. <laughs> and and they they then dig in their head going, hey, I don't under I don't know much about these people, but I know that I love this dish. So why mm-hmm. is this dish the way it is? Because if you really, really think about it at the end of the day, food is the, food is sustenance. It's, it's what we use to, you know, keep us alive. Well, we use what's around us. So like, for example, um. You know, a good buddy of mine who, who's a chef up here, his name's Jamal. He's, he's Somalian, you know, in, from the Twin Cities. And Jamal, we would talk about some of the dishes. And as we talk about some of the dishes, he would tell me about some of these ingredients. And as he talks about some of these ingredients, I'm like, oh, this makes sense because that's what you guys had back in Somalia. Mm-hmm. And those, those ingredients actually grow in a certain place and they had to harvest it. And there, and there's a story behind that. And I, and after a while, you're not really talking about food. You're talking about someone's soul. You're talking about their humanity and we can connect that way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cool that you, you are able to tell these stories through your food, through your restaurants. Um, you have uh, union Hmong kitchen and then your upcoming establishment, uh, Vinay, which you describe as a love letter to your parents and to that legacy that we've been talking about. Can you, you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but can you share the significance of the name Vinay and the role it plays in your family history? Absolutely. Yeah. Vinay is the name of the refugee camp that my parents met in in 79. From 75 to 92, Vinay hosted 90,000 refugees from the Vietnam War. And out of those 90,000, wow. uh, 90% of them were Hmong. And out of those 90%, majority of them ended up in the Midwest. 
So I, I could talk to a lot of kids that came out of Eni and we would, you know, sorry, I would, I would talk to a lot of kids who were, you know, refugees and immigrants and we would talk, you know, I'm 38. So like right around that, you know, mid thirties, you know, we, we talk and we'd be like, Oh, where'd you come from? Or, you know, what camp were you guys in? Cause all oh, my parents are in Eni. So yeah, are mine too. You know? And so there's that connect that again, like mm. our people have that connection. Vina is, it's a very synonymous name to all of us, you know, among kids, we grew up like that, that name was so part of our vernacular, so part of our language. And as we, one of the things I love is being able to teach others who are not from our community and says, well, you know, like, I, I, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Vinay? What, what, what does it mean? And the moment I said, Hey, this is a, this is a refugee camp from the war. You know, a lot of people are like, they perk up and they go, Oh, well, explain more. Because when we think of refugee camps and we think of this, we think of these things that, oh, that was so long ago, right? That was so, you know, so many years ago, or it's like, oh yeah, that's like, you know, if you think about, you know, what's going happening in Ukraine and how there's all these refugee camps around there for, we're like, well, that's on the other side of the world. But then the moment I talked to someone going, yeah, like I was born in that camp, you know, mm-hmm. we lived, I lived there, you know, I was born in 84, we were there till 88, you know, my parents lived there for 10 years before we came to America. And a lot of them, like a lot of my friends who, when they realize that it clicks in their head where they're like, well, not to be, you know, whatever they're, they're just like, well, I just never thought that. Like we grew up going to college together. We grew up going to high school together. Like I didn't know that you were born in a refugee camp somewhere. I'm like, yeah, like that's our story, you know? And so, mm-hmm. so we call it Vini because we wanted to offer a place of hope. You know, Vini, mom always said, Vini is not where our story ended. It's where our story began. And I love that. I love that fact. Mm. And so I literally, uh, when we were kind of thinking about this, you know, brick and mortar concept, I said, Hey, let's, uh, I want to call it Vini and it's a love letter to my mom and dad. So I'm a literal person cause I'm a cook, you know? So, so I'm like, well, I'm going to write a letter to them. And I wrote them a letter, never gave it to them because they can't read English. So, and it was weird to, <laughs> to like give them that letter. So I put my heart and soul in writing this letter of like what they mean to me and what Vini is. And I, when I did that, we, we extracted these three themes that came out of there. And out of those themes, what we realized, what Vinay is really about is belonging. We want to create a spot that echoes the legacy and heritage of mom and dad. And what, what's their legacy? What's, their, what's the echo of their heritage? It's about, cre- it's about creating a table where everyone belongs. So we grew up I love in our home. Yeah, where, where they had a table and anybody came in, there's always food at the table for them. Well, not more. That's what, that's what, that's a Hmong phrase. It means come and eat. And, 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 and it, it is a greeting also. The moment you walk into a Hmong house and, and there's food everywhere, it doesn't matter. You, you don't have to make reservations. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like, oh, we're coming tomorrow with four people, blah, blah, blah. It's like, come in, <laughs> more. come and eat. Yeah, come and eat. Come and eat. Anytime you come here and we have food here, this is your table. You belong here. So that is like, the ethos of Vina is you belong here, no matter who you are, you know, no matter what your checking account is, no matter what, you know, your, I don't know, political party you voted for or where you stand, you belong here and everyone belongs here. And so that's that idea. Vina is everyone belongs here. And you know why that's important? Because that's mom and dad's heritage. That is their legacy that they're leaving for us. That's amazing. Um, what's your vision for the restaurant in terms of the food and and mm-hmm. and giving this place to to people that know and love mm-hmm. that food, but also maybe you know opening some people's eyes that have never tried Hmong mm-hmm. food before. Yeah, you know, even within the Hmong community, the the description or the understanding of what is Hmong food, right? Even in the Hmong community, we struggle with that because, you know, you know, when, when we were kids, we were asked, what is Hmong food? It would be like that awkward eighth grade dance where you don't know where to put your hands. So you kind of end up going, well, it's kind of <laughs> like, um, it's not Thai, but it's kind of like Thai. It's not Vietnamese, but it's kind of like Vietnamese. You know, it's a, it's not Laotian, but it's kind of like Laotian. And you end as kids, we ended up going like, well, um, you know, like, so what is Hmong food? And so we coined this phrase saying Hmong food isn't a type of food. It's a philosophy of food. You know, it, it is a way of thinking about food. So, you know, the greatest thing about the Hmong people that I love is no matter where we go, we can always use the land to grow what we need to grow so that we can feed our people. Mm. So you can go to Utah with a group of Hmong people and they'll, they'll use that land and they'll grow the produce that they want to grow and they're going to be making food and that food is Hmong food. 
It is. See, see the word Hmong literally means free or people of the free. And not kind of, and like that idea where we're not held by boundaries because we're free to think outside of the lines. And I love that. And I love teaching that to our young Hmong people where, you know, where it's like we, our parents came to America so we can be free. Mm. So let's, let's think outside of the box. So a lot of Hmong food actually is, you know, reflects the area or the region they're, you know, they're in. So the monk food out in Fresno, California is going to be a little different than the monk food in Bogotón, Florida, or the monk food in Little Rock, Arkansas is going to be a little different than the monk food that's in, you know, Dayton, Ohio. The monk food in Dayton, Ohio is going to be a little different than the monk food in the Twin Cities. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's the land that we grow our produce and product in, you know, and that's what being monk is about because the monk food we have here in America now. It's it's progress. It's moved forward. It's a little different than the Hmong food we have in Laos and Thailand. Because the mm-hmm. honest truth, the Hmong food we have Laos tries, which is your quote unquote traditional. We always call it traditional. There is it's it's a lot of stews and a lot of boiling. It's a lot of you know uh, preserving through um, curing and making jerkies and you know and a lot of grilling over fire. A lot of fire, and that's where I learned how to cook is over the fire. So Dad taught me that. So Vinay has a big reflection of fire, you know, so we're using charcoal, you know, wood fire to grill a lot of our proteins, you know, and, 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 you know, Hmong food, I always tell people, if you come to my house and mom's making you dinner, you're going to find four elements on that table. You're going to get a rice, you're going to get a protein, you're going to get a vegetable, and you're going to get a hot sauce. And all four of those elements create what we call Hmong food. So people always ask me, what's your favorite dish? I'm like, I can't, I can't tell you what my favorite dish is because all four of those elements play off of each other. So one of the philosophies of Hmong food, which I really love, is the idea that no one dish is better than the other. It's this, it's changed my worldview. The idea that together we can do more. You know, as we were, we were little kids, we would fight over now silly things. And I remember one day my dad, I think it was literally, I think under the dinner table, there was like four of us kids and there was like, like five pieces of chicken or something. And we're like, who's going to get the last one? And I'm always, I was always the idiot kid who I'm like, well, it's not fair. You know, that's the first thing I said. And my dad (laughs) stopped us and he goes, don't like, don't use that word, you know? And he goes, and he taught me a valuable lesson that day. He said, when you say this is mine, you have less. But when you say this is ours, you have more. Hmm. So it's this idea that with Hmong food, it's never been about mine, mine, mine. So there's no individual dish because that's why when we serve food at our home, it's all in the middle. You, you'll never hear a Hmong family go, let me make you a plate. Because when you come to our home and my mom's making you food, she's going to take all that food and she's going to put it in the middle. And she's going to give you a plate and you get to put as much as you want in there. It's endless. There's never going to be like, well, there's only two pieces left. There's one of us. What do we do? You know, it's then you take you can take both of them because when you come from a group of people that have suffered together, that had hunger together, that have died together, it's amazing just to be around the table together. Hmm. And so Vinay, the food we make is, yeah, we get the food that we make is from mom and dad's table. But the truth of the matter is that. Uh, I think the public and, you know, the majority culture, you know, there's just this idea that it's like, oh, if it's put in a fancier plate and has a little juicy sauce and has some little edible flowers on it, you know, it has more value. So, you know, I came from that school of cooking, so I can do, we can do that. We can do that. That's a little part of me. But the philosophy, the ethos, the flavor profile, that's from mom and dad's table. So, you yeah. know, that's where we get to interject. Like we put little bougie little flowers on there, you know, because it makes it great. <laughs> it's good for the gram, you know. It's for the but gram. The, you got to do it yeah, for the gram sometimes. It's for the gram. But at the end of the day, like the heart of it is Hmong, you know. And so we yeah. get a lot of messages from Hmong people. The hardliners are like, this isn't Hmong food. You bastardize our food just to get your own name and glory. And then, you know, on the other end, we have a lot of people that says, thank you so much. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for, you know, speaking for our people through our food. And again, like at the end of the day. I'm, I'm not speaking for our people at the end of the day. I'm not trying to represent our people at the end of the day. I want to be truthful. I want to be honest. And I want to look at my mom and dad in the eyes and say, Hey, did, did, did I do you justice? Did we do you, did I do you right? That's all I really yeah. want to do. That's all I'm about. You know? I mean, I think it's interesting because, you know, you, you've clearly 
come back to this place of being so passionate and proud about your culture and, and where you come from. But you've also talked about, you know, this deep longing, you know, growing up to kind of assimilate to American culture. You know, you talked about being, you know, the weird kid in, in, in Pennsylvania yeah. and yeah. that kind of thing. So what has your path been like in terms of, you know, going from this longing to to be like everyone else and then now this celebration and amplification of your culture and your family? Yeah, you know, it's like that old Rascal Flat song, you know, uh, bless God bless the broken road. I, I always yeah. joke about that. He's just like, you know, you started on this road and you didn't know where you were going and suddenly it just brought me back to you kind of deal. And uh, it, that's how I felt. I, I think I was a kid growing up going, dude, I don't want to be different. Right. It's so funny. Right. When you're a child, you're a kid growing up. You're just like, I don't want to be different. I want to be the same. I just want to be like every white kid. Right. I want I hated my name. Yeah. It, they, they struggled with it. And they're like, you know, you got made fun of. And I remember a kid in, high, in, in elementary school because, you know, you know, most Asians have like kind of like smaller noses. And he would always come and put up his hand to my face and goes, hey, flat face. And for a whole year, he called me flat face. And I thought it was cool because I got a cool nickname, you know? So I was like, oh, awesome. I'll be that kid, you know? And I hated it and I hated it. And I remember growing up in high school, I was just like, if, if, you know, I played sports and I did a lot of extracurricular activities and I'm like, if I can just be like them and if I can talk like them and I, I know all the pop culture references and I would listen to, you know, all the pop music just so that I could, you know, like, oh yeah, I totally know what he's saying or, or watch all the shows or, you know, that's actually how I got super into ESPN, you know, because like, the, like, like the dudes, you know, would always talk about, oh, hey, do you see who's getting drafted and da, da, da. And I would always constantly read the sports page. I watch ESPN Sports Center all the time. I was super, you know, I love football. I played football. The only thing I wanted to do out of high school was go play college football. That's all I wanted to do. And I would sit there every day just watching ESPN over and over. You know, sports centers repeat itself. I would constantly yep. just do that. So I'm like, okay, so I know all the names. I know all the references. So then, you know, when the dudes are all talking about, you know, so-and-so is getting drafted or, you know, this, you know, $2 million bonus deals. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, and I wanted to be so much like that. And in college is the same thing. But I, I realized that you run so far from who you are or who you're meant to be that you actually run in a circle and you come back to who you were always meant to be. And that's that's me. I, I told my mom I never want to cook in an Asian restaurant. I'm like, ugh, you know, and so a lot of the restaurants I cooked in were, you know, there was, I cooked in a Tex-Mex, I cooked in an Italian restaurant, you know, French restaurant, Americano restaurant. That's all I did. I was like, ugh, I don't want to ever have to like do a quote unquote Asian food. And here I am, you know, and, and my aha moment really came uh, when uh, my dad had a really bad accident, like, I don't know, five years ago, a really bad accident. He was in the ICU and uh, it was a head injury. And I remember I'm sitting in there, I'm holding his hand and, and I'm, I left the hospital because it's three hours from where I was at that time. So I left the hospital, I was holding his hand. I left the hospital. And as I was leaving the hospital, I thought to myself, if dad dies, like it took him like six weeks to recover. It's like, if dad dies in that hospital bed, like who he is goes with him. And I don't know much about him because I've run so far away. And so it changed me that day. I'm like, we're changing the way we're doing food. Like I'm unapologetic. And it became this journey of going back and just really seeking out and saying, Hey, mom, dad, I, I want to know you guys. You know, we, we just got done um, filming this project and, and uh, with this TV show that, you know, that I so feel so blessed to host. What's so cool about it is we're, we're going out there and, you know, we're we're, uh, we're working with different, you know, guides and we're, there's all these like crazy invasive creatures that we're, you know, kind of, you know, uh, catching and cooking. And it's amazing. And I, I remember I brought those, you know, I'm like, hey, mom, like this is what we're doing this week or we're out here in this, you know, this part of the state doing this or we're out here in this part of the country doing this. And my mom's like, oh, yeah, we grew up eating that. And my dad's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I know how to eat that. And I'm like, wait, what? And I'm sitting there and they're talking about their childhood growing up, being able to, you know, to harvest some of these, you know, animals. And I'm sitting here going, and I feel like I'm just dig digging in into their childhood. And it was, it was so awesome. And yeah. so it, again, like I said, it's, it, I feel like it's like that you run so far from who you are or who you don't want to be, but you just end up running back to it, you know? And so that's where I am. And, and that's where I get excited. You know, um, everything we do, it's, I, I always tell people it becomes a platform where I can talk a little bit more about them because you have to understand I was that seven, eight year old kid who every night I go to bed and I pray to God that I would wake up 
the next morning I would be white and my name would be Will. Like I, I, I thought that because I just wanted mm-hmm. to be like every other kid. And one of my friends in elementary school, his name was William. And I'm like, oh, that's such a cool name. I didn't want to name like Yeah, where every time teachers try to say it, all the kids look at me and they're like, oh, it must be him because he's the only one that doesn't look like us. And I want to be Will. And, and I wanted to ha- I wanted my parents to speak English um, because I was so embarrassed that they couldn't. So I couldn't tell my, my friends couldn't come over because I was really embarrassed. And and I was like seven, eight years old. And you fast forward that 30 years later and now I'm going to bed and I'm hoping to God and I'm praying that I, I get a chance to wake up the next morning to tell other people about them, you know, to. Mm-hmm. To, to kind of in a way like redeem myself from all these horrible thoughts I had as a kid where I'm like, I didn't want them to be them. But, um, but as I get older, I realize that I, I am them. I look at my dad and I'm like, I am you. Everything that's good about who you are, your gentleness, your kindness, your humbleness, like I, that's so much part of me. And so now I get to wake up every morning going, please ask me about them. You know, we get to go on these shows, we get these great media platform where I'm like, this isn't a brand or this isn't a shtick about who they are. It's everything that's good about me. If the way I know how to cook is from my mom. The way I know how to start a fire and grill meats, that's that's from my dad, you know, and and I I, I don't know, like I get to be in this moment now where I look at that kid and I'm like, dude, it's tough. I get it, bro. Like I look at that seven-year-old kid. I'm like, it's tough right now. And you're not going to get it. But in 30 years, all this stuff is going to make sense. And I tell people that I get the best job in the world, dude. I, I get to wake up every morning. We get to start fire, grill meats, cook food. And then we get people to talk to us. And then I get to tell them about two of the most amazing people that I know that's changed my life. That's what yeah. I get to do every day. <laughs> and at the end, you know, and so that's why I love it. And that's why I love where, what we're doing. And, you know, and we're, we're, we, again, like I tell people, we feel, I feel so blessed to just have this platform. So I think that's really beautiful. And, um, and I know last year also you became a U.S. citizen, oh, yeah, uh, which yeah. also makes it like very full mm-hmm. circle for you. Um, and, and you joked about, you know, wanting to to change your name and you yeah. and you stuck with you. Yeah. I, I think that's so cool um, because it actually means iron skillet, right? Yeah. So if you, in, in our native tongue, if you look at um, in our native language, the word yeah is literally means iron skillet or, or like an iron frying pan, a wok. And as a kid growing up, the monk kids are kind of mean too. like my, my, my cousins are kind of mean. They're like, hey, where's the year? And I walk in. I'm like, are you talking about? Hey, are you talking to me? And they're like, no, the other one. Ha! <laughs> um, but my um, my mom is so because because here's the deal. The truth of the matter is my youngest brother's name is Komong, which literally means blessing of God. So we all know who they love the most out of all the children. <laughs> like you, you, you have iron skillet over here. You know, my sister's name is Mai, which means, you know, beautiful or graceful. And it's like she's, you know, it's like a girl. It's like it's a female name. And then my older brother's name is Chu, which literally means rice steamer. You know, that a Chu is a rice steamer in Hmong. A Yia is a frying pan. And then my youngest brother's name is Komong, which means blessing of God. And I'm like, well, we kind of know who the favorite one is. I said to my mom, she goes, don't say that. We love you all the same. I'm like, yeah, okay. But blessing of God over there is, uh, you know, uh, so growing up, that uh, was kind of the thing. And people always joked, they're like, oh, that's, it's your destiny. To, you know, I'm like, man, why couldn't mom name me like NFT or cryptocurrency, you know? <laughs> like, I would have been cool. You know, like, that would have been awesome, mom. Like, crypto, like, you couldn't name me crypto, you know? And I was kidding. Yeah, tells us about his new Food Network digital series, Stoked, when we come back. You have a chance to to demonstrate your passion for the Hmong food through your new Food Network digital series. It's called Stoked. You cook over um, an open flame. So stoked about it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you've you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but why mm-hmm. is this ritual of of cooking with fire so important to you? Yeah, I think that I think of our people and especially our, you know, when I I would go back 50, 60 years, 100 years is they're in the hills of Laos, in the hills of Vietnam and Thailand and all they had was fire. That's it. And it wasn't like a, Hey, let's turn on a grass gas grill with fire. It's literally you go collect wood and you start a fire and that fire provided three things. It provided warmth, 
It provided uh, a source for for cooking food and then provided light. And that's what they had. And I, I, I would hear my mom and dad talk about that. And it was it was just something I was naturally drawn to as a kid. Well, first of all, as a kid, you're like, oh, fire. Awesome. Cool. You know, <laughs> but eventually as an adult, you're like, wow, like there's so many elements to a fire. There's so many elements to um, how a fire works, how to cook with ember. You know, you're not cooking with flames. You're cooking with ember. And what does that mean? Or. You know, and, and, you know, people are so afraid of fire. I think a lot of people, they cook with fire. They're so afraid. Like, oh, my gosh, it's burning. But I'm like, you know, I jokingly always tell people like, you control the fire. Don't let the fire control you. And, you know, and I I think that there's like these life lessons. I think about it, too, where it's like when things are on, you know, things are going hot and everything is like, you know, kind of out of control. It's like, no, at the end of the day, you still have say over it. Mm -hmm. And so. That's how my father taught me. And, and I love it. I love anything that's cooked over fire. You know, I uh, I buy grills the way that some women buy shoes, you know, like, do I need it? No, but it looks <laughs> so good in the backyard. You know, it's like, you know, and my girlfriend always makes fun of me, but she goes, uh, didn't you just get another one? I'm like, look, back off. OK, but this one, it's, <laughs> this one's a lot. This you know, is a different one, but it's so nice. But isn't it cute, though? Like, you know, doesn't it just look cute in the backyard with my 18 other ones? And, and I really love cooking over fire so i'm always looking for you know a reason to cook over fire uh but the one thing is it's so elemental to our people you know you get a bunch of like you get a bunch of mung like dads and uncles out there and they'll like they'll create a fire and get a bunch of cinder blocks and throw some you know metal over top of it and they'll start grilling and they'll just be like yeah that's the way we do it you know and it's as a kid growing up and you're you're standing beside your dad and your uncles you're like you just felt like one of the boys right and you just yeah. feel like oh i'm cool now you know and, and, um, like, again, like I said, growing up, like we didn't, dad didn't take us to t-ball games or he didn't take us to like baseball games or all these things, but, it, but, but he, we grilled a lot in the house. So literally that was kind of my version of like, you know, as a little kid growing up, like as a quote unquote all American kid. And it's like, you know, you, you, you fit, you know, you hit your first, like, you know, uh, your, 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 your first home run or whatever, you know, like you're like really proud with your dad and it's like, Oh my gosh, you did it, son. And for me, it was like, it was kind of weird, but it's like, yep. Like when you had your own, like where dad just gave you the tongue and you went out and you grilled by yourself. That was like kind of this, you know, initiation of like growing to the next step. And that's, you know, we had that and, you know, and that was so amazing and so fun and it's so much big part of me. But the, one of the great things is like, I remember as a kid, I would stand really close by the fire and let that smoke hit me. So then my clothes would smell like, you know, it has that campfire smell, you know, to your clothes. And like, yep. it's like, cause that's what your my hair. dad had. <laughs> yep. and, and that's what my, that's what dad had. And I would walk inside the house. I'm like, mom, look at me. Like I smell just like dad, you know? And it's like so much you wanted to be like your dad. And, you know, for me, that's, that, that was me. And, and, and still today where, you know, I, I find myself like, you know, being done, like when we have a big event or we're cooking over fire and we're big done event. And I just, you know, I come in, I change my clothes in the house and like that pile just smells like, you know, campfire. And I just think to myself like, yeah, that's like, that's dad, you know, that's, yeah. that's the Brings reflection back of those dad. memories. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, love it. And for, for those that like grew up, not, you know, cooking, with fire and open flame all the time. I mean, how do you encourage them to try that out? Maybe master this method of cooking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, the first thing I would say is like, get a grill. <laughs> and if you need one, just DM me. I, I got a yeah, bunch. You've got there. a couple yeah. extra ones lying around. Yeah, it sounds yeah, I like. got a couple extra ones. <laughs> I'll recommend some, uh, you get, uh, get a good, uh, good grill that has charcoal. And I think that start with, uh, um, hardwood charcoal, like you can do the briquettes. Sure. Awesome. Kingford's got the corner on that, but get some good like char hardwood charcoal. And so basically hardwood charcoal is charcoal that's already been burned down, but it's, you know, from wood. So, you know, you see those pieces and uh, a really good brand is called uh, the good, uh, the good, uh, yeah, the good charcoal. It's called the good charcoal is actually a brand. <laughs> it's, it's a really great one because it lights faster. The heat is held uh, better, you know, and, and again, just, um, just get some really good charcoal and then start, start small, like literally just start small. And the biggest, the number one thing is don't cook over flames because people always want, they want that sexy, like, you know what I'm saying? That sexy Instagram shot where the flame is like bursting up. You know who really ruined that for us is Burger King, you know, like flame broiled, <laughs> you know, flame like, broiled. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> no, you don't want flame broiled. Like that's like, then you get burnt and it just tastes sooty, you know, but you're really cooking with embers. So like being patient, letting it, 
um, letting the embers go down to it's all white, you know, and then, you know, learn, uh, learn how distance wise, you know, like how high do you want it away from the heat, you know, learning indirect, direct and indirect uh, styles of, of cooking. And yeah, just, you know, just play with that. And you're going to, you're going to burn stuff. You just got to be okay <laughs> with it. Like I've burned many things, you know, um, and you got to be okay with it. You know, it's not going to be perfection every time, but there's nothing more satisfying when we were doing the, uh, when we were doing stoked, there was nothing more satisfying when you hear the sizzle, when you put that, you know, when we did uh, for us, we put that duck breast on there you heard that sizzle and then that perfect crust that's happening on that skin side. And as you flip it and then you hear all that sizzle and all that popping and that, that smell, you know, when you're, when you're grilling, there's so many senses that are going on, especially with wood fire, there's so many senses and you want all those senses popping off. So. Uh, well, I cannot wait to to see more of that and um, and see some of that cooking and, and some of these staples that you've been talking about. Um, I've so enjoyed hearing your story and and just your passion and your enthusiasm um, for your food and what you do. Uh, we're going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round. And then we have one final question uh, that we ask everybody here on Food Network Obsessed. So rapid fire first, uh, three words to describe Minneapolis. Um, it sounds really weird. Hardy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't wait. And when I hardy. Hardy. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, hardy. Um, I would say hardy. I would say innovative. Because there are certain things that are going on because everyone thinks it's a flyover state, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, and then I would say diversity. Mm. There's a huge diversity community in there. Nobody realizes it because it's all like, oh, it's Lefsa and oh, oh, don't you know? Hey, da, 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 da. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, like, come here, man. Like, I'll show you all these little towns we have in here are these little neighborhoods that will just kill it with food. I love that. Yeah. What's up, um, New York? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, I'm, from, I'm from Montana originally. So. Oh, okay. It's so a similar area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, late night snack of choice. Oh, man, dude. I'm told you're so judged. Okay. So, <laughs> so this, 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 this is what I do. I, um, uh, I, frozen pizza. You throw frozen pizza in the, in, 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 in there's a brand up uh, in Minneapolis called Lata Mata. Okay. It's literally just a lots of moz- like mozzarella <laughs> cheese on it. And it's lots of matzo, but you cook it partway, like half the time. You pull it out, then you doctor it up a little bit. So you find whatever vegetable you have around, whatever meats, you chop it up, you throw it on top, and you throw more cheese on top. So it's it's basically having melty cheese over all these leftovers. And then there happens to be like this little crust on the bottom, which is like a glorified edible napkin that you just have all the stuff <laughs> on and then you eat. Yeah. And then you just get I like, yeah. It. And then the next morning, you're just like, oh, regret, regret, regret. <laughs> it's like a kitchen sink pizza, basically. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Um, show you're currently watching. Um, show I'm currently watching right now. I'm thinking, what show am I currently watching? Show I'm currently watching. I just finished up The Boys season three. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. It's so weird. Have you watched it? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can we just say say that there are things that you cannot unsee? Or there are things that you're like... Burned into your brain. Well, well, then it's like, how the FCC is okay with that? Like, I'm like... Streaming. I I don't know. I don't In my mind, I'm like, those writers are kind of messed up. I know. Like, how did someone actually like think of that yes. No, it's, it's, yes it's wild it's wild. i don't know why i keep watching it though i'm just like I, um <laughs> it's like picking a scab like i know what's in there it's just blood's gonna gush out <laughs> just gotta you know? see it gotta see it yeah. for myself yeah that's hilarious mm-hmm. um pantry staple you cannot live without oyster sauce fish sauce salt pepper and granulated garlic and coriander okay uh first thought when you found out you were a james beard award nominee uh, to be completely honest, I didn't know what was going on. Uh, I had, my, I, 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 you know, I was just out to lunch with my girlfriend. We, I had my phone off and then I turned my phone on and there were 52 missed messages. And I was like, crap, what's happening at the restaurant that people are freaking out, you know? And then also too, I have a text chain with all my old college buddies that we, they always send like stupid memes to each other and dumb, dumb stuff like that. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, like somebody sent a meme and everyone's going off riffing on it. And then I suddenly I just like, what's going on? Like, why are they saying congratulations? Like, what's happening? And then I was like, oh, crap. And I remember I had to stop the car in the middle of the road, pulled it aside. And then, yeah, I was like, what's going on? I'm freaking out. <laughs> and so, yeah. 
I, I really Great. didn't have a thought. I was like, what's what's going on? Why is there so you're much? Just like, what? Like, you're just confusion, I guess, is the thought. There was a lot uh, of confusion, yeah. <laughs> All right. What would be the title of your memoir? Don't Hate Me Till You Loved Me. <laughs> that sounds pretty perfect. All right. Yeah. So our final, our final question that we ask everybody here on Food Network Obsessed is, what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. Um, there are no rules. Like calories yeah. don't count. You can travel, time travel, whatever yeah. you want. Absolutely. Okay. So I would start breakfast out with a, a really good like New York City bodega sandwich, you know, egg mm. sandwich. You know, yep. but then like I'm I'm that dude who like will throw in like 20 slices of thick cut bacon type thing on there, too. So like that and just good, like good fake craft cheese, you know, and then that, yep. that, that soft. You got to have the American like, cheese for sure. Yeah. Oh, come on. There's nothing better. I think some restaurant was trying to create their own. I'm like, stop, just stop. You're embarrassing yourself. Um, OK, yeah, you do that. And then lunch, uh, I would probably I, I'm a I'm a I'm a sucker for chilled noodles, you know, mm. so some kind of chilled noodles. Um I'm a huge fan of this ramen style. It's called um, a sukemen, where it's like you get the noodles and the noodles are chilled, but then the broth itself is like a reduced concentrated sauce. So then you take the noodles and you dip it into the broth and you just like, that's just like, you don't, they don't make that much around here in the States. So wherever I can get a sukemen style ramen, I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's the jam. And then I would say dinner would be like seafood, Um, you know, just kind of being landlocked here a little bit. It's kind of hard, but I'm talking about like like raw chilled seafood, like mm. the, the, the the big like like four layer stacked up where, you know, you just got your lobster, <laughs> you got your stone. You want crab. the tower. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. The behemoth tower. That's, you know, something <laughs> along that line where it's just like and then we're getting like deep into like different kinds of shrimp, different kinds of oysters. And like, I'm just a sucker for that stuff and just sit there with, because it's like when you eat that stuff, you never feel like you're full, right? Mm. It's not like a hearty steak or something. You eat that and you can just have it with like a light Pilsner or a light lager beer. And you just sit there and you pick with your friends and you just pick it, pick it, everything. Yeah. I totally do that. And then, you know, and I don't know. I, when I was younger, I used to be a big dessert person, but now I'm not really, but I would just say, uh, um, what is it? Um, uh, uh, cheesecake factory cheesecake, <laughs> good old like strawberry <laughs> cheesecake factory. Yeah. Like the whole, like the old schools, cheesecake factory, cheesecake, like the strawberry, you know, mm-hmm. just plump on there. Yeah. Good to go. All right. Well, that sounds like a, a pretty perfect day. And um, again, it was such a joy uh, speaking with you and, and hearing your story and your love for your family and your culture and uh, best of luck in all of your adventures to come. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for having me on the show. Greatly appreciate it. So grateful to Yia for sharing his amazing story with us. And you can catch him on his new series, Stoked, out later this summer on foodnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. <laughs> 